Well, we start tonight with our first question. What does God think about divorce? I saw a simple answer to that question this past weekend when I was at a marriage retreat with my wife up in Green Bay. Uh, The couple who ran the retreat said that they had been at the mall just a a few weeks or months beforehand and they had run into this couple on a double date. Uh, These two guys, they said, were standing next to each other in the mall a few feet back from their wives holding their purses in their hands uh, while their wives talked and bonded and sorted through a big stack of clothes. And the people who ran the marriage retreat, they went up and they said, you know, we got to tell you, we love to see thriving marriages and this is so inspiring. Uh, They said, can we take a picture of you and show it to the the conferences that we present at? And the men agreed. Then the leaders of the conference put the picture up and it turns out that these men were 89 years old. (laughs) They said they had been going on double dates together with their wives for over 50 years. And they still love to do the little things and put their wives first that made their marriage thrive for so long. That's one way to answer the question, what does God think about divorce? Uh, God doesn't like it because he loves to see love like that. He loves it when people put each other first and do the little things to serve one another and bring joy into each other's lives, not for a few days or months, but for years, even for decades. We find God teaching that way in the first pages of the Bible. When God first makes a man and then he makes a woman and then he makes marriage and he says the two will become one flesh. In fact, when Jesus taught on marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19, he quoted those first pages of the Bible. He talked about God's design for marriage and then he spoke these words in Matthew chapter 19. He said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In fact, when Jesus quoted Genesis chapter 2, he used this picture. Uh, He said a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Did you know in the Greek language, the word united is literally the word glued? That a man and a woman would not just, you know, be close to each other or near to each other. They would literally be glued to each other. They would have the closest, most intimate, most vulnerable relationship that two people on earth could possibly have. God loved it. But he knew what would happen if we try to undo it. Because if you try to undo these two that are glued, well, there's no easy way to make it happen. You can try your best, but there will be pieces and there will be holes and there will be tears in human hearts. And the father who loves his kids more than you and I have ever loved anyone would hate to see this happen. You see, when God says something in the scriptures about divorce, he always says it because he cares. And the same is true for divorce. But it's not just God that says that this happens, it's the divorce people that say this this happens. I had a chance to interview some people from our our church family and, and one man, he said this, I hate divorce. I mean, I hate it. That feeling of absolute failure, rejection, and disappointment is awful. Another woman lamented how my kids have been affected. It it tears me up. I spoke to a guy in my soccer league who doesn't even go to our church. and He was happy he had gotten divorced, but he he admitted to me, he said, it doesn't matter what side you're on, if it's your fault, if it's not your fault, going through this 
is miserable, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. You see, God hates divorce because of the damage it does to the people he loves so much. But perhaps we should be more specific. It's, it's not just the act of, of filing for a divorce that bothers God. It's the things that lead to it. One of the most quoted passages about divorce in the Old Testament is in Malachi chapter 2. Um, look what it says there in verse 16. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. God seems to be saying that before the divorce happens, hatred happens. When a man or a woman give up on love and they give in to hatred, when they stop thinking what Pastor Tim taught us last week about you first, you first, and start thinking about me first and my needs and what I want, they do violence to this beautiful institution that God has joined together. When that covenant that they both entered into one day where they said, I, I will love you for better or worse. If you serve me or if you don't, if you're nice to me or if you're not, I, my love for you is not going to be based on a condition. This is not a contract. It's a covenant. When they give up on that, give up on, on love, truly unconditional love, it attacks the beautiful and sacred bond of marriage. And before papers are ever filed, the one flesh is ripped into two. You see, essentially, God hates it in a marriage when he gets replaced. God knows that, like we've been learning in this sermon series, if, if he isn't enough for our hearts, if we need something more than the presence of God, those little idols are like seeds that will grow into toxic fruit in a marriage. If you're taking notes, it's actually our first fill in the blank that I would propose to you that divorce is just the fruit of a rotten root. Divorce doesn't just happen, right? You're not happily married and then one day you just decide to rip the one back into two and go through all that pain and drama. No, divorce is the predictable fruit when certain roots are set down in a marriage. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, sometimes when a guy meets a girl, he pursues her. Like he, he works to impress her. And he showers and he shaves and he puts on cologne and he, he writes cards and he's creative and she, she loves it. She falls in love with it. She falls in love with him and then they get married. But then a root starts to grow. And the root is that he wants to be respected at work. And you don't get respect unless you work like other guys don't work. And so he's the first in and he's the last to leave. And he works and he works and he works at work. But he stops working on them. He brings his phone home because he doesn't want to disappoint his boss and make him wait. And so his wife has to wait. He would never imagine being late on a project, but the project's at home. He doesn't even think about it. He would dread disappointing his boss, showing up, 10 minutes late to work. But he doesn't think about twice about showing up 10 minutes late for dinner to disappoint his wife. Somehow he cares more about this guy that just hired him, a guy who will fire him if he doesn't make him enough money. And he stops caring about the woman who vowed to love him for better or for worse. 
When a man needs to be respected, he needs the promotion, he needs the status, when that becomes an idol for him that he's willing to sin against his wife, uh, he does violence to the marriage that he should protect. It happens to a lot of women too. It might happen with work or perhaps more commonly it happens with family. You know, she, she pursues him and she woos him. He falls in love with her. She's fun and she's spontaneous and she's energetic and, and they date and he proposes and they get married and they have kids and then the kids happen. And she wants to be a great mom, right? Like all the other great moms. And that means you've got to have fancy birthday parties, right? You can't just get a kid a card these days. And they got to be in one sport and swimming lessons and soccer practice and all the other kids at school. Never mind that their parents have pretty difficult marriages. Well, we got to do what those kids are doing. And so we sign them up and she runs and she drives and she runs and she drives and she runs and she drives and she comes home and she's got nothing left. No energy to serve him. No energy to love him. Suddenly he seems needy. You're a grown man after all. These are, are children and she takes him for granted and she changes. And suddenly his heart feels empty and he starts looking for attention elsewhere. It can happen in a thousand different ways but whenever God gets replaced, whenever sin sets down roots, divorce might be the fruit that starts to grow. The reason God hates this the divorce is because he hates this, the idolatry. And the reason God hates it is because he wants something so much better for me and for all of his married children. He wants something that I unexpectedly heard about a few months ago. A guy from my former church in Madison calls me out of the blue and he tells me that he just got divorced. Pastor Mike, would you ever preach on divorce? He asked me. I said, yeah, actually, I'm I'm about to. Would you tell me about your divorce? And so he did. He said that he and his wife had this toxic habit of keeping score in their marriage. That they got married like every couple, they divided up the household duties, I'll do the yard and you do the finances, I'll do this and you do that. He said, but then, pastor, we started to count. We started to figure out in our own minds who was the lazy one and who was working hard. Who had the right to kick off their shoes and grab their phone and relax and who really needed to get things done. And the expectation of being served, of you doing this for me, he said it suffocated our marriage. The the tension killed them. They split up. Their son was caught in the middle. But you know what, Pastor? He continued, now that I'm divorced, I I love doing things for my ex-wife. The dishes are actually kind of fun. There's no expectation. I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I want to. In fact, I wrote down his quote. He said, Our relationship now is filled with ways to outserve each other. And I hung up the phone kind of baffled. <laughs> and I thought, I'm happy for you. <laughs> and I thought, you know that idea? You know what's way better than serving each other after this happens? Serving each other so that this doesn't happen. And I think maybe that's why God brought some of you here tonight. You're not divorced, but you've thought about it. Maybe you've threatened it in one of those ugly fights. But but God wants you to know today, you don't need a new spouse. You need a new heart. You need a new model. And the model is this sermon series. 
God, God, fill my heart. Stir me, satisfy me so that I, I just serve and I don't want anything in return. I'm not doing this to get something back. I'm not cleaning the house so that she'll make love to me. I'm not making love to him so that he'll clean the house. There's no expectation. I'm, I'm just doing this because I want to. I'm, I'm doing this for you, God. And if she doesn't notice or if he doesn't notice or they don't reciprocate, it doesn't matter. This is worship. This is not a contract. Because you know what happens when you do that? Fruit. Set down those kind of godly roots and God will bring back fruit, gentleness and kindness and compassion and affection and 60 years of holding her purse with a smile on your face because you want to make her happy. God doesn't want divorce because he he wants uh, what I got to witness the other day. I took my two daughters uh, to a date at the Copper Rock and we ran into two of our church members there and they were sitting at one of those you know, little coffee tables with the four chairs except they were sitting on the two chairs right next to each other holding hands up on the table. And uh, I walked over to go say hi and you know, be Pastor Mike and it took me about a minute to realize I was interrupting. And uh, I found a table with my girls and I leaned over I said, you see that? God loves that. What does God think about divorce? He doesn't want this for you. Because God loves to see love like that. Amen. Would you please stand? I'm going to join our band in our next song. Uh, it's a beautiful song called I Am Not Alone. Some of you feel alone in your marriage. Some of you feel alone in your singleness. Some of you feel alone after a divorce. But God wants you to know that he is with you always. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let's join our band in our next song, I'm Not Alone. Question number two. What are godly reasons to divorce? Did you know that when Jesus was growing up, divorce was debated? Two of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history were actually teaching in the synagogues as Jesus was growing up and learning himself. Their names were Shammai and Hillel. And they debated with very different interpretations the meaning of a single verse from the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, a passage which says this. Oh, excuse me, that's kind of hard to read, huh? <laughs> I can read it up there. It says, uh, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And Shemai and Hillel, they debated the meaning of that word indecent. Like what was indecent? What was cause enough to write a certificate of divorce and separate what God has joined together? And Shemai had the more conservative interpretation out of the two. He said indecent means adultery. It's sexual immorality and it's nothing else. And Hillel had a more permissive view. He said indecent could be a lot of things. If you're not happy with her, if you found someone that makes you happier, in fact, this has actually been preserved. Hillel said, if your wife burns your dinner, that's indecent. And if it's displeasing to you, you can get divorced. Interesting, right? And so you have the conservative and the more permissive interpretation and they teach and they debate and people are divided. And then a few years later, Jesus starts to teach. He becomes a well-respected rabbi and people want to know what, what he thinks about the debate. You can look at what happens in Matthew chapter 19. 
uh, the longest section on divorce that Jesus taught. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? Sorry, lots of technical issues tonight, huh? Let me open my Bible to Matthew chapter 19. We'll do it old school tonight. Jesus said, Haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united, be glued to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus said, no, you cannot divorce because she burns your dinner. Uh, You can't divorce because you don't have feelings anymore. He said, God doesn't want you to separate what he has joined together except for sexual immorality. If that happens, God does not command, but he does allow divorce. If you're taking notes in your program, that's reason number one that Jesus would teach, that divorce is permitted for a Christian in the case of sexual immorality. If she cheats or if he has an affair, the Christian could file for divorce without guilt, without shame, and with the presence and the blessing of God. Now, uh, when I say that, I want to make something really clear. Um, When I said in the start of our service that God hates divorce, uh, I want to make something really distinct that God doesn't hate the filing of papers for divorce. God hates the actual ripping apart of a marriage that causes a divorce. I met many people in the church who feel guilty and sinful because they're the ones that initiate the legal process even though they have a valid biblical reason to do it. Sometimes if a guy gets cheated on and he's a Christian, he feels guilty but he can't make the marriage work after her infidelity. And she feels innocent because she's not the one filing she wants to still work on the marriage. God wants you to know that The innocent are innocent and the guilty are guilty. In fact, I've even had cases where a guy who's cheated on his wife uses the Bible as a club and says, don't you know that God hates divorce and makes her feel guilty for wanting to leave the marriage? And I say the man should have read the Bible before he did what led to the divorce in the first place. You know, filing does not equal fault. And so God wants you to know if you're a Christian, you have the right to file for divorce if you're the victim of sexual immorality. There's another reason too. Uh, If we jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives us a second reason for a Christian to divorce. He writes to the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife but if the unbeliever leaves, Let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. You see the theme again, God loves marriage. He doesn't want us to separate. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, the brother or sister is not bound. 
if one person just walks away from the marriage, the Christian doesn't have to sit around essentially being single with a ring on her finger. If a guy just abandons the covenant that he made, he abandons God and he leaves, the Apostle Paul says, you can live in peace and you can get a divorce. This is what many people call the cause of desertion. That a husband or wife has been deserted by their spouse. But there's something really, really interesting about this passage. Uh, It's actually really helpful and hopeful and also one of the most dangerous things that you're going to hear in this sermon series. Uh, That something is the phrase Paul uses, in such circumstances. You notice that he doesn't say, in this circumstance. Like if someone's an unbeliever and they physically pack up their stuff and they move out of the house. Like when that happens, you're not bound. No, he says, in such circumstances. And my interpretation of that phrase is that Paul's saying there might be circumstances like this where not two people end the marriage but one person like unilaterally abandons the covenant and the vow. Here's why that's dangerous. Because that means a lot of people, maybe every person, could say, I- I've been deserted. It's one of those circumstances. <laughs> so let me be crystal clear, uh, just as a church and as a pastor, what I'm not saying and what I am saying. All right, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that anyone has been deserted if their marriage is caught up in the crazy cycle. You know what the crazy cycle is? He sins against her. And then she sins against him and he's mad so he sins back against her and she sins back against him and he's working too much so she kind of gets unkind and impatient which makes him want to work even more which makes her angry and she doesn't want to be intimate which makes him do this and then they fight and they go back and forth until it's just so fast and sinful and nauseous that they're just sick of marriage and they want to be gone. That, that's not desertion. All right, that, that's sinful. That's not what God wants for us but that is not a cause for a Christian to divorce. This is not the woman who comes to me and says that she's being emotionally abused. And, and my heart breaks and I ask her to tell me the story and I find out all these just wicked, vile things that her husband said. But then I talk to her husband and she failed to mention all the things that she said. That they're both verbally abusing each other with the way that they speak. That, that, that's not desertion. This is not the guy who comes to me and says, Pastor, I haven't had sex in six months. And the Bible says a wife can't do that. She's breaking her marriage vow. And if that was the whole story, he'd be right. But it's not the whole story. He's a workaholic, porn addict, who doesn't think about her needs and he comes home and demands to get some. And and that's not desertion. This isn't two people going back and forth until there are just no feelings and no intimacy left. That's a marriage that sowed too many sinful seeds and that can be fixed by the grace of God. No, what desertion is, is when one person just unilaterally commits themselves to a sin that destroys the marriage vow. This could be an addiction. This could be drinking. This could be drugs. This could be pornography. This could be verbal abuse. This definitely could be physical abuse. Uh, It's the person who doesn't want to change. It's the person who might say the right things in front of the pastor to the church but goes home And there's no evidence that he wants to change, that she wants to change. And if that's happened, if it's so destroyed the the vow of marriage itself, I don't even want to work on it, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Uh, I believe, standing that verse, that is 
such a circumstance and a Christian is not bound. Which begs a really important question, doesn't it? How do you know? If it's kind of gray in the, in the middle in that phrase, how, how do you know if you've been deserted? And my short answer to you would be that you probably can't, but we probably can. I'm not sure what happens to you when you get sinned against, but my heart goes crazy. When someone comes after me, I find it instantly easy to remember all the things that are wrong about them and minimize all the things that are wrong about me. And I can only imagine when you're at the, the point of divorce with those deep wounds that it's probably really easy to see all the fault on his side or her side and maybe miss some of your own. And so I would say that a Christian should never make the call whether they've been deserted or not by themselves. Instead, they should reach out to people who actually love God more than they love them. Who love God because they love them. This is going to be a pastor. This is going to be a life group at our church. These are going to be parents and Christian friends who aren't going to pick a side. They love marriage. They love these passages. They love Jesus. They believe that his word is the best word. And listen, in interviewing people from our church, I, I learned two things. That it's hard to listen. It's so easy for the church people who don't understand the full situation, especially pastors like me, to make a quick call. After 30 minutes, I'm supposed to understand whether a person has a cause for divorce. I've learned I can't do that. I need to listen and listen and listen and understand before making that judgment. And it's the same for the person in the marriage. They're going to need to listen to God, listen to God, listen to God's people, listen to God's people, and then make the call. As Christians, we, we care about the will of God. We know that God will only be with and, and bless certain paths. And we know that you cannot get divorced for any and every reason, but there are some reasons that you can. Reasons that we will open our arms and accept as a church. Reasons that God himself will open his arms to embrace you. The question is, what are godly reasons for divorce? And that's what God says. Let's pray. Uh, dear Father, um, I know for some of us, we, we desperately ache for wisdom. Whether it's our own relationship or our brother, our sister, our son, our daughter, our friend, I mean, it's so easy to be quick to speak and so slow to listen. So would you help us, Father, to have a humble heart? Um, to open our hearts and especially our ears wide to listen with compassion. But especially if we're in the middle of it, to listen with humility and believe that you're a good God and you would never forbid us to do something that was in our best interest. Help us to trust and to believe you, God. Heavenly Father, we believe that you have not forsaken us for a single moment, that you're going to be with us every step of the way. That is our hope and that is our future. That's why we join God in the song crying out the belief of our hearts that you are God who is always present in sickness and in health for better or worse until our death one day makes us meet you face to face. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, that brings us to our third question for tonight. Uh, what about life after divorce? Uh, I will never forget the deep, deep maturity in her question and the look on her face when she asked it. Pastor, can I marry him? She was new to the church and newly engaged. 
She was excited about her upcoming wedding and so excited to come to worship, but she was listening to Jesus. And she knew that Jesus had some things to say about being remarried. Her fiancé was already divorced and so before it got too far, she asked me the, the honest question, the question that most Christians would try to avoid. She said, Pastor, can I? Is God okay with this? Tonight, as you heard these passages from Jesus and from the Apostle Paul, I wonder if you asked the same question. What about life after divorce? What do you do? What can your relationships look like? If you care about God, if you love and you trust him, if you believe that he is always good, like we just sang, what options do you have as a follower of Jesus? Those are great questions. I want to give you really practical answers today. And I want to start with um, the innocent spouse. So there are three options as I read the scripture for the innocent spouse. And by innocent, uh, I don't mean the spouse who never ever sinned. That's impossible. I mean the one who was the victim of sexual immorality, the one who's cheated on, the one who was deserted, um, the one who sinned and end the marriage. What options does that person have? And I would propose to you the Bible says there are three. The innocent spouse could remarry or remain single or reconcile. They could remarry. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, the believer is not bound in such circumstances. They would be free uh, to date again, to get engaged again, to have a wedding again right here in the church with the blessing of God. I know a woman who told me about her story. She was cheated on by her husband and she felt so strongly that divorce was wrong. Even though it didn't work out, she, she just couldn't, she couldn't do it. And she started to date but in her heart, she still felt guilty. And she got engaged and she planned a wedding but there was this burden on her shoulder. She confessed to me that it wasn't until the day of her second wedding when the pastor said, God is here and, and God's going to bless you that the burden was finally lifted. She didn't realize that was an option for the innocent spouse to remarry with the presence of God. That if you get remarried and, and that's an option for you biblically that Jesus is going to sit here in the front row and he's going to applaud as you are introduced as husband and wife for the second time. Option two, you could remain single. As we've been learning in the sermon series, you, you don't need a spouse to live happily ever after. Jesus was single and he was kind of a good guy. <laughs> the Apostle Paul did amazing things and had amazing faith. He wasn't a second-class member of the family of God. You might remain single and that's a good, godly calling. Uh, you don't have to be alone. You can rely on the beautiful friendships of the church family and people that you know and honor Jesus with a single life. Or you could reconcile. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea where God sends this prophet named Hosea to an unfaithful woman. He says, pursue her and love her. And when people are confused and they say, why, Hosea, would you go to her? Then you tell them, because God came to me. After I deserted him, after I left him, after I cheated on him with all of these other gods and idols, God still loved and forgave and wanted to be with me. And for some of you, that's what you're going to do. The marriage ended, you got divorced, but you're going to come back together. Or maybe you thought the marriage was going to end and you had already filed papers, but you're going to stop the process and say, you know what? We don't need a new person. We need a new marriage. We've been sinning against each other and it wasn't right, but I forgive you and I want to make this different. I want to put you first out of reverence for Christ. So if you've been cheated on, if you've been deserted, as a Christian, you can remarry, remain single, or reconcile all with the the blessing of the church, most importantly, the blessing of God. 
But what if that isn't you? What if you weren't the one that got cheated on? What if you were the one that cheated? What if you didn't get deserted? You were the one who deserted. What, what does God say then? Well, that's a little more complicated. Uh, but I propose on the next slide that there are two things, if you're a Christian, that you must do and then there are two things that you might do. What you must do as a follower of Jesus are numbers one and two. You must repent and then repair. Repent means that you agree with God that what you did in the divorce was, was evil and wicked. You don't rationalize it. You don't justify it. You don't say, but she said or but he did. Instead, you own your sin and say, God, that, that was bad. If I could go back, I, I would do that differently. I, I can't fix it. I can't change it. Forgive me. I repent of my sin. And then you repair, which means that you fix whatever you can fix. Like if you're a member of our church and, and you stuck up a bank and pulled out a gun and took $10,000 and then you, you realized, oh, that, that was wrong. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't steal. That was evil. And you confess it and I say, well, you gave the money back, right? And you'd say, well, no, do I have to do that? And I would say, yes, yes. <laughs> Is what John the Baptist called in Matthew 3, verse 8, the fruit of repentance, right? You don't just say you're sorry, you show that you're sorry. You, you try to prove with whatever you can do that you wish you wouldn't have done what you did. And if you're the guilty party in a divorce, this might mean going back and, and owning your sin, talking to the kids, talking to your ex. Not like the conversations you used to have where you'd bring up his mess or her mess, but you just say, this is what I did and it's not what I vowed to do, it's not what God wanted and I'm sorry, what, what can I do to fix this? And once you've taken that step, you're, you're going to have a clear idea of God's options for you from there. I would say just like for the innocent spouse, then three things might happen. Uh, you might possibly reconcile. Uh, you might remain single. I don't have that on here. Or you might remarry. Number three is probably the toughest thing I'm going to say to some of you tonight and I know I've said a lot of tough things. Um, Jesus taught and, and Paul agreed that if it's your sin that ends the divorce and you get the divorce but your ex wants to be with you, if you're a Christian, there are only two things you can do. Go back or stay single for the rest of your life. The fruit of repentance, as Matthew 3 said, w would be to go back and make it work. Remember, not to go back to the same old me first mess but to a marriage of you first that would make us blessed. If it was your sin that caused it and your spouse is willing to forgive you and, and try again, that's what God wants you to do. And Jesus said to, to remarry someone else at that point would be adultery in the eyes of God. But what if that's not an option? Right? What if your ex doesn't want to make it work? What if your ex has moved on? What if your ex is already dating, already engaged, already married, already had kids? Well, in that case, God would say, you can marry someone else. That's what I told the woman in this case. Her husband had been divorced but it just wasn't an option for him to reconcile and so their marriage was good. And it wasn't second rate, it wasn't second class. We could have it in the church, we could have prayers, we could celebrate with the blessing of God. They were both repentant, they were producing the fruit of repentance and so remarrying another person was an option in the eyes of God. So, whether the sin was yours or his or hers, this is what you can do. Uh, but let me say one quick thing. Uh, some of you, uh, because I, I know you as a church family, uh, you didn't do that right. 
Uh, maybe it was your sin that caused the divorce and then you got married again, but I don't know, maybe tonight's the first night you're hearing that that wasn't right. That Jesus says it's adultery, but what do you, what do, you do now? <laughs> I mean, do you get divorced again? Do you, do you rip one back into two? Is that what God wants? And the answer is no. Um, the amazing truth about God is that even if the first day of your marriage was wrong, right now with his presence, it can be right. He doesn't want you to separate. He wants you to confess the, the sin and love the one you're with for better or worse, in sickness and in health. I know there are a lot of options to think about. Some of them, for lots of us, are scary, but I want to leave you with this passage from Proverbs chapter 3. Some of you memorized this as kids. It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, even your dating, relationship, divorce, remarriage ways, in all of your ways, submit to the Lord and he will Make your path straight. You never, ever have to be afraid to do the will of God even if you can't see to the end of that path just yet because God is on it and that means the path is good. Now, I want to show you a movie. Uh, it's a song that many of you have, have heard. Uh, it's a reminder that sometimes we put back the pieces after divorce has happened but for some of us, we can put together the pieces b- before it happens. And so if you brought a broken relationship into church today, I want you to know that God can be the glue that allows two broken people to be broken together. Take a look. That brings us to our last question for tonight. What does God think about the divorced? If you want an answer to that question, just walk with Jesus into Samaria. He makes a beeline for a well just outside of town. He sits down and he waits for her. She comes under the hot Samaritan sun and she can't hide the sweat on her brow but she tries to hide the divorce of her past. She sees Jesus, this strange man, and he asks her for a drink. Uh, He's not hitting on her. He's hinting to her. You're thirsty, aren't you? And then he brings up the one thing in all the world that she really, really wishes that he wouldn't bring up divorce. Like, go get your husband, Jesus says. Uh, I'm not married. She dodges. I know you're not. You're living with someone, right? And you've been married, right? Five times? Understandably, she tries to change the subject and graciously, Jesus follows the tangent. And then he does something no one expects. He stays. He stays to talk. He stays to listen. He stays long enough to reveal who he was, the Messiah, the the Savior, the living water that she was thirsty for. She runs back into town and brings back everyone she can think of. And for two days, the Bible says, Jesus stays and he teaches and he forgives and he saves. What does God think about the divorce? I suppose you could wait until you get to heaven when you see the woman at the well rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. Or maybe you could just read that little line that comes in the story in, in John chapter 4, verse 4. The verse says this, Now he had to go through Samaria. 
If you've never studied biblical geography, this might be the most important reason to do it. Judah was down here, Galilee here, Samaria in the middle, and every Jew knew that you did not have to go through. You walked around that godless place. But John says, no, he had to. Jesus says, I, I have to go there. There's a woman, a, a divorced woman, and she doesn't know. She doesn't know about me. She doesn't know about living water. She doesn't know about life. I, I need to talk to her so that she knows what God thinks about the divorced. And perhaps that's why God has you here tonight too. You, you've carried the burden. You've had the baggage. It's been the taboo thing you don't want anyone to bring up. But tonight, God wants you to know about grace. He wants you to know what he thinks about you. There's a super, super famous passage in the Bible that's about divorce. Uh, many of you have memorized it, but I'm guessing you never thought about divorce when you said it. See if these words sound familiar. John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See what I mean? Guess who's included in the world? The divorced. For God so loved the divorced that he gave his one and only son that whoever, guess who whoever includes? The divorced. Whatever divorced person believes in him shall not perish but have life, eternal life. Like an, an abundant and a full life, not a second class life. You see, Jesus Christ, he had to come to this earth. And he had to go to a cross. He had to stretch out his arms and say, it is finished so that you could have life. So that if you're divorced, you wouldn't be a second-class Christian. You would not be a, a partial member of the Holy Christian Church, but fully fledged and fully forgiven, a card-carrying, redeemed, justified, sanctified, pure and perfect child of God. And Jesus did all of that so you could have the kind of life where you would not have to hide where you'd not have to scurry, where you'd not have to deny or excuse and said, you can know I'm good with God and I'm part of this family too. I know for some of you that's so hard to believe. Uh, one divorced man told me the wretched story of how his, his ex ripped out his heart. In the pain of the process, it got demonic. She said, you're worthless. Nobody loves you. Nobody likes you. Everyone's just using you. And he started to believe it. And if that guy was here tonight, do you know what I'd say to him? Hell no. If that's where that comes from, hell. That's not what God says. Hell no. God says, you're my son whom I love. You're a member of the body of Christ, needed and necessary and useful. One woman told me how she felt so alone and so, so worthless. He left her and abandoned her. She wasn't good enough or pretty enough or worthy enough and she started to believe it. Do you know if Jesus would look her in the eye, what he would say? Oh, hell no. No, it's not who you are. You're the bride of Christ. You're the one I sought, I pursued, I thought about when I rose from the dead. I heard about the kids who were terrified that their heavenly father would do what their earthly father did. And he wouldn't be around much anymore. If it wasn't inappropriate to say such words to kids, you know what I'd say to them? Oh, hell no. <laughs> like, no, no, no. No, that is not what God is like. God said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Parents might break their promises, but Jesus never, ever will. I will be with you always. <laughs> what does God think of, about the divorce? He, he thinks that. 
Maybe my favorite proof comes in Isaiah 62. I know I quote this passage to our church all the time. Verse 5, one of my favorites. As a, a bridegroom or a groom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. <laughs> I love it, right? Picture the groom in front of the church and his bride walks to the door. What's the look on his face? That's the look on the face of God when he thinks about us. That what Jesus has done when he shed his blood was so beautiful and it was so complete that God delights in us as we're going through the pain, as we walk away from the courthouse, as we try to put our lives back together. God delights in the divorce. And if you've never been there, I need you to hear that. Do you know the, the number one thing I, I heard from interviewing members of our church who've been through it? is that the enemy just messes with their heads. They're going through the process and they just assume that they don't belong in a place like this, that they can't come for a while. And every time someone looks at them and then looks away, in their minds they interpret it as judgment. They're whispering, they're watching, they're thinking about me. They're, they're thinking about Jesus, not about you, but, but they run away from the thing they need the most, the community of God and the word of God and the presence of God. So, so would, you, would you make me a promise as a family? that we would not let that happen. That if a brother or sister in the faith is going through it and if they have a cause for it, that, that we would open our arms so wide that we would intentionally text them every single week. Think about it. For some of them, for years, they've had someone to sit with, someone to come to church with and now for the first time, they don't. And they're going to need us. They're going to need us to step forward and say, you want to sit with me and my family? Maybe for 10 years, they've had dinner at a dinner table with a family and now for the first time, the kids are gone for the weekend and they're divorced and it's so lonely and they, they need us. In our crazy busy schedules, they need us to set an extra plate and to send an invitation and say, we love you because God loves you. You see, they can't see this yet. They don't see the face of God and the devil lies and lies and lies so they need to see our faces reflecting the face of God. We accept you. You're one of us. We love you. Be here with us. You see, if we do that, we can answer the question for them. What does God think about the divorce? He loves them. He loves them so profoundly. I just want to leave you tonight with, uh, with one last video. Uh, it's a video I've, I've played once or twice here at our church. It's one of my favorites. It's about a woman who sins. Uh, she cheats on her husband. And there are consequences, not just a divorce. She gets pregnant and she hasn't told him yet. And he's pursued her and he's tried to love her but she's rejected him and, and she was walking away but now she finally comes home with her sin and the consequences of it. What will he say to her? How will he think about her after what she's done? And as you watch this video, whether you've sinned in a relationship or your divorce was sinful or you just carried a, a sin into church today, I want, you, I want you to walk with that woman like she's you and I want you to watch her husband's face I want you to see her husband's thoughts and just think that Jesus died so that is how God thinks about you. Take a look at the greatest story of love ever told. God, who would ever love us like you love us? Who would ever react that way despite all of our sin? We love you and we worship you because your love is, is gracious and unconditional. God, you know more than I know, but I know there are people here who are trying to put the pieces back together. They're trying to save something that doesn't seem savable, but God, you're God. So do what we cannot do. 
save what we cannot save and change what we cannot change. More than anything today, God, help us to remember when we walk out of here today, no matter who we are and what we've done, you walk with us with your love and your presence and your power. Help us to remember no matter how he looks at us or she looks at us, how you look at us. Your face is rejoicing like a groom on his wedding day. Help us to believe it, God, and may joy and happily ever after come out of it. We pray this all in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, his face, shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.